listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. If you've been with us, we've been in the book of Exodus. So Exodus 15 verses 1 through 22 is our text today. We've been going just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this incredible story of the children of Israel. And uh, many of us, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know these stories. Um, But it's so profound because what it is is an entire group of people, a nation being freed from slavery and bondage by the mighty hand of God. Exodus 15, 1 through 22, reading out of the NIV. If you have a Bible, uh, you can read it with me. If you share it with someone next to you, if they don't, or it's on the PowerPoint screen. But let's go ahead and read where God has us today in this redemptive story, and uh, then we'll pray. Exodus 15, 1 says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters uh, congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies in your unfailing love. You will lead the people you have redeemed, and in your strength, You will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you 
for this vivid picture of your people experiencing your presence and your power and the person of God with all your attributes and all your goodness and your mercy and your justice and your compassion. And God, we thank you that what we see thousands of years ago, this historical account, your word is for us today. God, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever for every single people group that has ever lived. Every tongue, tribe, and nation you love and you care about and you desire for them to see your glory and your power to experience your healing and your redemption. And God, we are mindful of this wonderful, amazing place that we call home and the people that live in it. And God, we're mindful of what's happening on Mount Achaia right now and that, that tense situation. And God, we ask that you, your, your presence and your power and your glory would fall in that place. God, we ask that um, for safety for all who's involved, for wisdom and discernment, God, for healing and restoration. God, thank you that the same God we see today is with us now and loves every one of us. So God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word by your power and your might. We want to see you exalted in this place this morning because you're worthy and deserving of it, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's happening here in the book of Exodus, what we're caught up in, the story that we're reading, is the most important moment in Scripture up until the cross. Like without doubt. The freeing of God's people out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of 400 years of bondage, is the most pivotal, crucial, important piece of history in Scripture we have till the cross. And it's incredible because what we see in our text today is a people that are worshiping their God in their culture, in their traditions, and most importantly, it's the God of not only their creation, but it's the, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of their people. And what we've seen over the last few months is like this hard, like walking through the mud, like battling to try to get to this point. Like it has been such a long road for the children of Israel. Pre-Moses and the burning bush and God using him to go before Pharaoh, let my people go, and all the plagues. Before all of that, right, there was 430 years of slavery to an entire people group. But we've seen over the last few weeks God miraculously come. He heard the cries of his people. He came to save them miraculously through the Passover, right, the Passover lamb and how he miraculously saved them from his judgment and his justice. And last week was a dramatic ending once and for all to God's enemies. Pharaoh, this tyrant, the epitome of evil, was finally swallowed up by the Red Sea right after God had parted it and the children of Israel walked through on dry lands. And our text today is picking up right as these two and a half million people that's what historians would say. The amount of Israelites walking out of Egypt, the entire exodus is filled with two and a half million people, and they've crossed. The seas have now come back to what it was, swallowed up Pharaoh, and everything would suggest that this worship song I just read, I didn't sing. I didn't sing for him. I'm not going to do that. That's my wife's job, not me. 
This is a worship song that was read, that was made up, that was written and performed immediately after the seas had come back. So it's like they get across, everyone's settled, they turn around, they dramatically see slavery end and freedom of a nation and it's finally over and they're finally out of it. The thing that they've been hoping for for generations has finally ended. And they could finally take a breath. Like finally a sigh of relief. Like it's been, it's been stressful and hard and, and fearful up until this moment. But finally there's the relief. And what do they do? They sing a worship song unto their God. What I want to do today is just draw out a few things that I believe are most important from what Israel did. Like in this place in the story there's certain significant things that I think we can learn from, that we can take for ourselves and apply it to our own lives and our own families and community and church ohana. And there's a few things that we can take away from this significant moment in a certain people group in a certain time of history that, that, that applies so much to us as well. So here's the takeaways. Uh, three points, we're going to walk through them. Number one is we need to pause to worship. So important. We need to pause to worship. Number two, we need to give glory to God in our worship. And number three, there is power in praise and worship. This is what we see in Israel, and this is what I believe that we need to take, grab, and take a hold of ourselves. So here's number one. We need to pause to worship. What's so fascinating about this song that we just read is it's the first song ever recorded in Scripture. It's the first song of praise. It's the first time that God's people get together and they sing and they dance and they make a melody into their hearts unto the Lord. It's the first song in the Bible that we see. It's also, a lot of historians think it's the oldest poem in the world. Like, this is an historical moment in the life of not only Israel, but in the world. It's the first poem. It's the first song that we see in Scripture. And I love it because Miriam which Miriam, it says it's Aaron's sister, but remember Moses and Aaron are brothers. And so I don't know why I didn't say it, but Moses, this is, this is Moses' sister. And if you remember the, store, the start of Exodus, the way Moses started his life, is it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a genocide called upon the land. Pharaoh said, I, want, I need to kill every firstborn, uh, first, firstborn child, every Hebrew child that is born, we need to kill. And so Moses' mother put Moses in the basket in the Nile and sailed, and then, and then Moses ended up in Pharaoh's household. You guys have seen Prince of Egypt. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But also in that space, it says that Moses' mother and his sister were there. There's an unnamed sister on the banks of the Nile or in that time of Israel. This is what many people would think is Miriam. Miriam has seen all of this come together. Think about you know, Miriam was probably a toddler. Maybe she remembers it. Maybe she doesn't. Miriam saw her mother put Moses in the Nile, send him away to try to save his life. Traumatizing, absolutely. But what happens is, is God, by his sovereignty, saves Moses. He grows up in Pharaoh's house. Now Moses is reunited with the family, with Aaron and Miriam. They've lived through this entire redemptive story. And then Miriam gathers all the women and it says, we're going to worship our God. I love it. 
And she's seen it, though. She's seen it come full around. She's seen the whole story come together with Moses, with the people of Israel. It's just amazing. So she, she, and what's so crazy is they, they worship the Lord in the, in, with their instruments in the way they had it, with a timbrel, which is like a modern-day tambourine. And they danced and they sung unto the Lord. And many commentators would, would think that this might have been the first time they would have worshipped in this way in their own culture. Remember, this is a group of Hebrews that they're not Egyptian. They're Hebrews. This is the nation of Israel that's been oppressed. They haven't, there's not a whole lot of partying and singing and rejoicing going on in the midst of brutal slavery. And so many people would think this would be the first time that they would have sung in their native tongue in Hebrew or in Aramaic, right? By nature, they, 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 they had to speak Egyptian or, or Arabic at the time, but this might have been the very first time that they would have sung in their own native tongue, when their own native instruments, a worship song into their God. This must have been the most powerful sight to behold. Think about it. A whole nation freed. Now they're, they're finally worshiping their God. Moses, Miriam, Aaron, and the rest of the leadership, they stopped the nation to reflect and collectively give thanks. They, they didn't have to, right? It could have just been like, thanks, God, we're good. Let's get to somewhere else first. Like, let's get settled. Let's like, where are you going to take us now? Like, that's cool that you just saved us. But they stop and they sit in it for a while. It's not a quick move. It's not without thought. There was a pause to praise. There was a pause to praise. And this moment in time was very purposeful. As they gathered their families, young and old, and it was a public display. They were unashamed. They were loud and proud to worship their God for what he had just done. And they knew the importance of it. They knew they just couldn't move on. They knew it wasn't their own doing that got them freed from Israel. I mean, from Egypt, excuse me. They were loud and proud and unashamed. It was a public display, and they stopped. They paused in order to praise. They took time. They saw it as valuable. God has just done something amazing. What's the proper response of my heart? I need to stop. We need to thank him for it. Nothing is more important than us stopping and giving where thanks is due. That's what the people of Israel are doing. So for us, what we have to do is we see this moment in the people of Israel, but we have to ask, do we do this? Is this also true of us as a people, as a church? And largely, we see that worship, the corporate musical worship of the saints is really important to do when the saints gather. And so a lot of the portion of our Sunday is worship. Before and after, we want to be a people that reflects upon who God is and what he's done and take time to worship him for it, right? We see the value that this is like the right response we should, we should do to God for what he's done for, for us. But the question would be is, do we do this in our own lives outside of Sunday? And that might be like kind of weird. For, like we might be so used to like Sunday is church and that's where I, I, I worship and that's where I do it. But do we do this in our families, like in our marriages? Do we stop? 
And do we worship God for what he's done in our midst? Because we can do that corporately. We do do that as a, as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters, as a family. We corporately are here because we resonate with what God's done. This is who God is and what he's done. And I'm saved. And the, the right response of who I am is to worship God. But when God provides, right, like when he answers prayers, uh, if there's anything of any significance that God has done for us in our families, which it's a lot. There's so much that God has done for us. Even if we think, oh, no, but I wish I had this, but I wish I had that. What about the air we breathe? What about the roof over our head? What about the food that we can go to Costco and buy just readily available? There's so much to be thankful for, but do we take intentional time to worship and thank our God? And again, it doesn't mean that you have to be like Miriam and grab your tambourine and grab all your friends, and just start dancing and singing in your home. You can do that. I encourage you, if you can, do it. But you don't have to do that. What would it look like for us to be a worshiping people? What would it, be, what would it look like for us individually and as families to worship? I don't know about you, but I'm totally that guy that my best time of worship is in the car. Just driving Put on, like, on shuffle, your favorite worship songs, which, guys, let's be honest, there is so much music out there. Like, it's readily available for us to just listen to. Or maybe for you, it's like, no, I can't do it on the drive. Maybe it's like, you can go to the beach real quick. Or maybe it's like, you, you run, and it's on a run. Like, you, you, when are we worshiping our God for what he's done? Because I think the point that is being made here is it shouldn't only be once or once a week or it shouldn't only be it should be something that when god does something in our life the right the, the right response is to worship him for it and so really with all the incredible worship music out there and itunes and airpods and, there's no excuses there's no excuses why we can't and i get it's going to be different i get the the, the vibe and the, the tone and whatever but I think the point here is that we as a people, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we need to have intentional time of pause to worship. Amen? So we see in Israel, I believe that that's for us as well. Number two is that we need to give glory to God in worship. I understand that that might seem obvious, but what I'm going to talk about in a second, it's not always obvious that that's the point. Right, so for Israel right here, the song that Miriam and, and Moses and the rest of the leadership and the people are singing is a powerful song of redemption. It's rightly been designated the song of redemption because it's proceeding from the hearts of a redeemed people. And the theme and the content and the emphasis is all about their God. It's all about Yahweh. It's all about Jehovah. It's all about what God has done and who he is. Like, it's, it's literally nothing to do with them at all. It's, it's over and over and over the language and the emphasis of this worship song. Even just the, the, the word Lord occurs 12 times in 18 verses. The pronouns he, him, thou, thou, thee are 33 times in 18 verses. God, it's you who did it. It's you who saved us. It's you who parted the waters. It's you who redeemed us. You're the one that heard our cries, and you're the one that saved us. And we're worshiping you 
because of that. We're standing here singing and dancing and saying these things because it's for your glory. You're worthy of this praise. And, and by nature, what worship is, what, what, by definition, it's ascribing worth to something. We say worship, but think of it as worth-ship. You worship something that's worthy of it. So our worship should only be that of God because he's the only one worthy of our worship. Amen? Because again, by definition, worship is praise, it's adoration, it's thanksgiving unto God because he's worthy of receiving it and, and being praised and thanks for his infinite value and worth. And so this song, the first song we have recorded in scripture, is actually very theologically rich. Like it's theologically sound and it's theologically rich. Like there's depth to it. It talks all about God's glory. It talks about how God is a personal God, how he's a covenant-keeping God, how he's kept his promises to Abraham is now happening now, some 400-plus years earlier. It talks about how God is a warrior, how he fights on behalf of his people. It talks how God is unique. It talks how God is loving I mean, it, it's, 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 it's rich, it's deep, there's much theological truth to it. And this is why it's always a good rule, or gauge, or uh, it's always a good thing to have theological depth and emphasis on the praise of God in our worship songs, rather than the focus of man. And this can be really subtle, but like kind of dangerous sometimes. And even, you know, it's not meant to, but there's a lot of songs that like the emphasis is just not exactly totally on God, but it becomes, uh, if we aren't careful, the songs can become more man-centered emphasis rather than Christ-centered. That's why it's important to uh, not only have, you know, songs that sound good and a good melody and a good catchy chorus, uh, that we sing and that we uh, worship to, but that they have some, they're not only theologically sound, like that's the Bible, you're not singing something outside the Bible, um, but they're theologically rich ones also. Because again, worship is supposed to be about God and not about us. Amen? Amen. So this is what is happening. These people are singing, they've taken time to, this song is is giving glory to God and ascribing glory to his name. And lastly, we see that there's so much power and fruit and effect that comes out of this. And there's real, there's real power of, of praise and worship when we do it, not only individually, but corporately. When we give God glory with our voices and with our songs and with our instruments, when we do that, like, praise is the natural response of those of us that have experienced God's grace. It's what happens. Like, when we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, when he's rescued us from the domain of darkness, and then he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, when he's broken addictions in our lives, when he's, like, given us hope for heaven, like, when we've experienced God's undeserved grace, what, what our natural response is by the power of the Holy Spirit is praise. Right? In the Exodus, we see this so powerfully. They sing when they experience God's grace. 
God's grace leads them to singing. God's grace leads them, leads them to praise. But it is so good for our own hearts. Worship is about God. But as a result, it is good for our own hearts when we keep God the focus of our praise. When we engage in worship often, not just on Sundays, but I can, we have an attitude of praise, an attitude of thanksgiving that well up in praise, it keeps us in a place of gratitude and humility. Right? It keeps us grounded. It keeps the attention on the right person. Right? Like when we, when we reflect and we recall all that God has done, and when we're actually like mindful that none of this stuff is ours, that we're stewards of it, that, that everything's a gift, like everything that we have is a gift from God. Like if we walk in that, and if we like recall that often, like, God, I don't deserve the job I have. I didn't deserve to get in that college. I don't deserve to have, like, direct deposit into my account. I don't deserve this food. Like, I don't deserve, like, you give me the air I breathe. Like, when, we, when we're mindful and when it causes us to worship and when we do that, what it does is it keeps all the attention off of us. Where it should be. God, you are good. You are God. I'm not. It keeps us in a place of gratitude and humility when we reflect and recall all that God has done. It gives attention to God and not to us. What that does so beautifully is it keeps us from pride. Man, pride is so wicked, guys. It's so damaging, and it can be so damaging in the church. We think we're, we're so good and so spiritual and so awesome and we've got it all together and we've been walking for this long and it's not just like pride out there. It's like it can be pride in here. But what worshiping our God on the same space and the same level, like it's all about God and not about us. It keeps us from pride. It keeps us humble. But it also keeps us from discontentment. Because when we're just remembering all that God has done for us and our neighbors and his plan for humanity, and when we're constantly dwelling upon those things, instead of, because what happens is, is why, maybe why we don't worship is because we're not as thankful as we should be. And we're not as thankful as we should be because we compare. Right? If we, were, if we were just like not comparing to what others had, we weren't, didn't have expectations that we needed or wanted more, Right, because we, we do that all the time. Like, I wish I had, I wish I had, I want, if only then. But what that does is we're not grateful for what we have. And so we actually totally take for granted everything that God has ever given us. I'm so guilty of this myself. But what happens is, is if, if, if I'm discontent, and I'm always comparing, and I'm coveting other people's stuff, and time, and money, and resources, and family, and whatever it is, well, then I'm not thankful, then I'm not worshiping. Man, what, but what worship does, what's cool is, if you worship God for all that he's giving to you regularly and often, it'll actually keep you from discontentment because you'll be so incredibly thankful for who God is and what he's done, and you're constantly reminded and singing about it. I don't know about you, but like when you're in worship on a Sunday morning, gathered with all the saints, 
and, and, and you're worshiping God and you're reminded of his character and his goodness. Like in that moment, you're like, dude, I'm good. Right? There's that moment that you spend with the Lord in the presence of God and you're reminded nothing else and all that I care about matters is about me and God. That is what God wants us to keep in. Continually worshiping God to keep us from pride, keep us from discontentment. Because, guys, let's, let's be honest. So much of our days, whether we're aware of it or not, we make it about us. And again, some of it's not bad. But think about, like, I don't know what your normal day is, but, like, right, you're setting your alarm clock because you have to wake up for your day. And I need my breakfast, and that's my clothes, and then I got to get on the road to my job. Again, those aren't bad things, but it's all about us. So what happens is, is we have a lot of responsibilities, and we've got meetings and emails and bills to pay and responsibilities. And if we're not careful, our whole life is going to be about us. But we can make it like, well, I got to do all this stuff. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, I know. That's what we all do. We're all in the same boat. We all have stuff that revolves around us. But if we're not always keeping God the focus and in the attitude of worship, we'll get so caught up with ourselves that we'll fail to remember that God is the one in charge and he's done it all anyway. Especially in a time of the iPhone and everything's at your fingertips. And a lot of times, if you have time, what do you do? Oh, remember the days of just doing nothing? I saw this, like, meme or whatever that it was this kid. It was a great meme. It was, like, th the whole thing was, like, before iPhones or before technology. And it was this, like, seven-year-old kid in the passenger seat. He was, like, waiting for his mom. And he was rolling up the window on his face and just seeing it roll up and down and what the window would do to his face. And it was like the whole point was like, remember the good old days before iPhones when you like did weird stuff like that when you were a kid? Now you have like an iPad or an iPhone. But right, our whole time is filled with stuff to distract us and fill our time and make it about us. But what we see in Israel is they stop and they pause and they give God glory and it births in them a heart that is focused on God and not themselves. It right, like praising God for them, not only ascribed God glory, but it rightfully reminded them that they were the creation and he was the creator God. Like, he's the potter, we're the clay. We're the creation, he's the creator. Like, it, like it, it kept them in that space. And if there's one verse that I just want to take away, that I want to, like, leave us with, like, to go back or in your journal, is Exodus 15, 13. It's a reminder of God's heart and his main objective and his main point. Exodus 15, 13 of our text today says, In your unfailing love, you will lead me. The people you have redeemed, in your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. This is God's whole intention from then until now. He wants to bring us out of bondage of slavery, of the penalty and the power of sin. He wants to save us from that. That's what the cross did. That's what God did for Israel. Egypt being synonymous with sin and slavery. He saved them out of us. God has saved us out of sin and slavery and bondage also. But what does God want to do with that? Why does God save us? Why does God redeem us? So that he could be with us. What's the end goal for God in the story of Israel? We're going to get there. Build the tabernacle. 
that would be the temple. What were those for? Those were for God's presence to dwell with God's people. The whole reason that God does all of this in Israel is so that they could be brought out to be brought in to a relationship with the God of the universe. That is what the cross has done for us. It's brought us out of the muck and the mire. has saved us from our sin and our self. And why did God do that? To make a way to restore a broken relationship so that we could be with him now and for eternity. This is God's heart. By his unfailing love, he's redeemed us. And now in his strength, he's guiding us to his holy dwelling, to intimacy with our God. I'm going to end with this. Worship rises or falls with our concept of God. It rises or falls with our concept of how big and wonderful and amazing God is. If we have a low view of God, we're going to have not much worship. But if we truly understand who our God is and the great things that he's done for us, our worship will be plentiful. A.W. Tozer said, worship is to be captivated, charmed, and entranced with who God is and struck with astonished wonder at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of Almighty God. That's what worship is supposed to be. You're supposed to be in so in awe of who God is that you just can't stop singing, can't stop dancing, can't stop rejoicing. For Israel, the reason why for them, it was the context of their own salvation story. Like the most powerful thing in their life was the fact that God saved them. It was their testimony. And guys, there is no more powerful thing that causes praise than remembering our own personal testimony. Remember what God saved you from and me from. Like we have to make it personal. God, you're mighty and you're merciful and you're awesome. Well, well think about what he did in your life. And what that will do is that will cause us to praise and worship our God when we recall our own testimony. Amen? So guys, we're going to do that now. We're going to worship. Like we're going to enter in and we sing these lyrics, like look at them and know that they're God's attributes and his character and his goodness and his deeds for you and I and allow it to cause us to worship him because he's worthy of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we have such a wonderful example of a people just like us that, that, are, that, are, that we're far away from you, that are, that are messed up, that are broken, that are sinful, but you saved. But you went out of your way because of your love to save them, and you've done the same for us. And so, God, we, we want to worship you now. We want to ascribe glory. We want to give you credit. We want to be thankful for who you are and what you've done in our lives, in our families, with our kids, in our church. Holy Spirit, help us recall all that you've done in our lives right now. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.